What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, the number one U.S. men's national team fan, Jeez. Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, how you doing, man? <laughs> Just like Bob Iger, once I think I'm out, they pull me back in. <laughs> uh, yeah, FIFA World Cup started. I, I know that you, you're excited for it. Uh, will you be watching USA versus England Friday no. Black Friday. No. No. Don't care. What? I don't like soccer. I don't care. No. Nah. Go watch F1, but not soccer. Dull. Dull. I don't like the storylines in soccer. It's really boring to me. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Seems like you're more interested in Bob Iger's return. Tell me about that. Well, I know just uh, on a unexpected, uh, you know, coming into today, last night. Not that it's totally out of nowhere, but... uh. Obviously, big, big move in the industry that'll have reverberating effects, as expected, around Disney, which has had a uh, rough 2022, like many entertainment uh, firms. So, uh, something to watch, without question. Definitely something to watch. Uh, I felt pretty good um, that I made some some moves to acquire some Disney stock last week, just to you know buy the dip. We'll see how that goes. Uh, anyways, I'm, I'm excited that. He's back because uh, Disney, I think some of the stuff they've been putting out, as we've talked about with some Marvel products, other than Andor, which we're going to be talking about next week, fairly disappointing this year. So uh, I think it's good to to get a steady hand back at the helm. Mm-hmm. I also just love that he was like, there's no way I'm coming back. No chance in hell. And then like less than a year later, he's like, oh, yeah, pay me enough money. I'll certainly come back. So. He loves to be in the mix. That's the kind of guy he is. But he's more than just a suit. He's uh a positive with creatives. People like working for him. People didn't like working for Bob Chapek. So uh, we'll probably see some uh, things change in the uh, media future. You know, I-, I wonder how like the backlash at the Disney parks with the genie plus and like the upselling and the price increases of various forms. I wonder how quickly we'll see that get changed. Yeah, actually I had somebody um, who I work with who's a big Disney head um, took his, his son for the first time with his partner and he's been probably like 20 plus times Disney. And he was like, it's gotten really expensive. And for someone that's been that many times to like comment on that, when, you know, they've balled out a number of times to go see all the attractions, pretty noticeable. And I know that the price changes have been a big talking point for many. So we'll see. I hope Iger moves Disney in a good direction. I'm sure Disney will continue to just be a mammoth, but let's, uh let's switch gears and get into a non-Disney product, the English, a Jeff Bezos product. <laughs> Go from one uh, one monopoly to another. Um, yeah, the English was a, a TV series, short short series that we uh, didn't talk about last week, but came out and dropped all of its episodes last week. And I think it was something that we were interested in, but I was going in fairly blind for this one. Um, but, you know, you tell me Emily Blunt is doing a miniseries and I mean, why not watch it? Right. What'd you think of the English uh, English is six episodes? Yeah. 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 I think that's kind of right. Like, I didn't really have any expectations or anticipation for the English as a series. But when I saw I was starring Emily Blunt and was the latest series from Hugo Blick, who we last talked about with Black Earth Rising on Netflix with Michaela Cole, I was like, well, that's a TV voice that's pretty established over the last 10 years. 
And Emily Blunt, of course, is a star who's been killing it for years at this point. Uh, might as well check it out. I like Westerns. I have Amazon Prime. Most people in England have the BBC, so very accessible. And yeah, I mean, what, what a confounding but still kind of good show the English is. You know, it's uh, kind of like our thoughts on Black Earth Rising. I, I think this Hugo Blick's like, style of storytelling is very uh, specific to him, which is cool that he has his own voice. But uh, I think there's definitely some ups and downs with his approach, at least in the English. So I liked parts of it, but I did find really just the plot and the narrative uh, difficult to follow and stick with as we meet more and more supporting characters and just the core tension of the, the plot with our two lead characters is just a bit muddled, but still looks great. I think the acting is really strong. So, you know, overall, it's it's pretty solid. But I think I think there was kind of a major flaw with like the storytelling. Yeah, yeah, I, I felt similar. Um, this was actually one of the rare instances where I felt like you have a miniseries, a television show that should have just been a, a two, maybe two hour, fifteen minute movie. Um, because I I think what you get with Blunt and Cheskay uh, Spencer as Cornelia and Whip uh, Wounded Wounded Wolf. Um, is really strong. Those two performances obviously carry it, but I think they have a a great chemistry. Although I think the romantic chemistry, I didn't necessarily feel. And that was an aspect I, I wish they just decided not to go with, but we'll get Mm -hmm. more into that. Um, But then I feel like you, you get these, like this meandering Western feel where it's almost kind of like bottle episode in some aspects. And it's like, man, I, I don't, I don't know how much the the like side quests or the side stories really grabbed me i always just kind of wanted to go back to whatever cornelia was getting at and and how her and whip were kind of working towards those goals together i think um i think the side stories were varying degrees of successful but i, I like you said the show looks great i mean wh- when they get back to whatever whatever is going on with cornelia and eli that's when the show is is i think humming on all on all cylinders and then you you get a couple of uh i think standout performances you know here and there i think uh rafe's ball as david Mm. melmont the the villain you know gets a lot to chew on and he's certainly chewing on it (laughs) um I, i think the flashback is pretty effective and gutting um and definitely i think highlights the i think the overall uh, message of it which is like yeah white men fucking ruined all this shit <laughs> we're, mm. we're just horrible towards um minorities and women and um yeah it's uh very sad the uh like commercialization of the west and, and how yeah. that's kind of told in this so effective storytelling but definitely some things i didn't like as well w- what were the like episodes or moments that stood out to you most you know, I think in general, like obviously, like the Western is a very popular and still effective genre. But like this specific like moment, you know, it's like eighteen ninety, like end of the Indian Wars, taming of the American West, time, right? And a big part of that, I think, is a lot of uh, hardship with uh, native populations, which is covered in this show pretty extensively. But I think like there's still a lot of like great tension with that especially when you have a character like Eli Whip, who is a Pawnee 
man who worked with the U.S. Army and thus had to uh, fight against his fellow native in the process. Like, that's a really great character and contradiction of a person, you know? And I think this show also, with some of those other side characters you meet, brings along with that other perspective of, like, native people trying to find their way in a post-West world, you know? Like, I think they do a good job of kind of establishing, like, the all the territories that are being formed up by the government and who can lay claim to the lands and stuff like that. I like all that stuff, you know? I think just sometimes the side stories just kind of distracted me, I think, because I, I feel like I just I just didn't need to meet, like, another, like, shitty or uh, morally ambiguous white settler type. Like, I feel like we had enough of those on the show. I actually would have preferred more native perspectives mm-hmm. um, just because I think it's more interesting. You know, um, a lot of those, uh, you know, cowboy types, I feel like you kind of know what you're getting with those. Now, sometimes I think there's a lot of good stuff with that, like uh, Black Eyed Mog. That character is just very memorable, you know, as a side yeah. per- side character with her eyes and whatnot and the way she talked and stuff. But yeah, like I think just when Whip was inter- interacting with other Native Americans, I thought that was awesome. And just him in general, like. I think Spencer's like presence on screen is incredibly evident um, as a memorable uh, native figure uh, on screen. And I actually, I think I liked him more than Blunt. Like I think Blunt's good in the show, but like I was expecting her to be a bit more, a bit more rousing. You know, there was actually a, a lot more, uh, I think like tragedy to her character than I was expecting selfishly. Mm. Um, but of course she's really, I think comfortable in this kind of a, uh, setting as you know we know with her career and stuff like edge of tomorrow or even jungle cruise last year right like she 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 can handle this kind of stuff and she does it quite well um i think my favorite moment overall was in episode five when they're uh whip and cornelia are trying to survive against that sniper who's trying to mm-hmm. take shots at them at long distance and yeah. how that's going and this you know the sniper is leaning back aiming his gun along his legs crossed mm-hmm. you know like Stuff like that, like little moments I, I, I quite enjoyed. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think the plot overall is a bit hard to uh, grasp onto. But, you know, moment to moment, there's a lot of a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I thought one of the side quests uh, that did work for me was actually the um, the native couple um, who's exactly. like exploiting the, you know, the, the white folk and uh, the, the people passing through. And I thought that was, it was interesting to kind of get that perspective and, and like, that was a take that I hadn't ever really considered. Um, but that, that makes a lot of sense, you know, it's like they're in, in some ways just profiting off of the idiocy and, and the people not, not knowing what they're doing. I also, um, I also liked the like, chase scene-ness of the um i don't know if it was like a i think it was a german like um mm-hmm. german settlers and, and like trying to get the kids back to it. i thought that was pretty interesting um as well but like not you know it's like i remember moments of it but other moments kind of fell short i think like i think there's like some great moments and some things things that come through with the side quest but i really wanted to get back to like Okay, what is what is Cornelia getting at here? Like, w- w- tell me more about this relationship that she keeps referring back to. Like, it's so like shrouded in mystery. And I think Whip is like, you know, a, a very like com- complicated but like very interestingly drawn character in terms of his uh, history as a, a soldier 
with the United States Army, you know, working for them out in the West, you know, you see the flashback to that massacre and him kind of being the one that had to like find these soldiers and what a complicated uh, like dynamic that is and just how he feels so torn. I, I thought that all was pretty interesting. Um, I, I have to say, if you ask me, like, how did they get from point A to point B? And like, what was the overall like plot? I, it would be very difficult to, I think, summarize it. But it was just like just enough to kind of keep me interested every single episode, which I give them a lot of credit for. Tell me about the things like or like moments that maybe you wish were a little different or things you would have cut out. Like for me, I mentioned the romance was wasn't great. Yeah, yeah I agree on the romance. I think a lot of stuff with those soldiers, you know, just like mm. them as antagonists, like there's a lot of like back and forth and jumping forward and back with the timelines. And like it just felt a bit convoluted because ultimately it's not a complicated story or plot. Right. But the way it's told makes it come across that way and harder to follow than it really should be. It's just stuff like that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah, and I think the idea of them being these two like broken people um, who find each other and then are like companions through this like scary uh, like new world for Cornelia and this like broken world and, and hopeless world for Eli was enough already. Seeing them like, I don't know, like, I think it's episode five when they finally like kiss and it's like, you know, I didn't even feel like a romantic presence between them. And then I think they kind of, I felt like that was a bit forced. I think they would have been okay regardless of that. But um, what did you think of the very end? Like, I think that they're taught he's, uh, she's talking to their child, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, the whole development, like of like the syphilis side of it, I was like, Oh, this kind of snuck up on me as a, yeah added like dramatic weight it's like ah, it's all right i guess um i think it was it was a good way to ground it though in the forward advancement of time with like the buffalo bill show and like what that represented for uh you know native people in the post-west time so that was i think effective and like kind of like that postscript with like those flash forward scenes are good enough but yeah like i don't know i just i wasn't super invested in a lot of the uh, like personal dramas of it by the end. Yeah. Yep. I uh, completely agree. Uh, I am interested to um, see if, if, cause this has gotten fairly good reviews. I wonder if Amazon, um, as they are still kind of figuring out how to build out their, their streaming platform. Uh, I mean, they have some great series. We talked about the boys, we talked about Lord of the Rings. I wonder if they might start building out more of these mini series though, you know, getting some creators mm-hmm. that just want to like do some stuff. Um, I mean, you had the the small axe um, stuff, um, right? Was that two years ago now? Jeez. Yeah, twenty twenty. Uh, yep. But I I think this sort of thing is kind of <laughs> I think a lane that they could start infringing on HBO's yeah. territory a bit. Well, so they do have the Donald Glover deal that True. will soon bear fruit with Atlanta ending. Maybe Donald and and friends go down the mini mini series route. Who can say? Yeah, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge, you know, obviously they have a good relationship with her with Fleabag. So you get the creators, people will come. Um, Let's switch gears, though, to the big screen where uh, Dave put in just putting in that work for She Said, uh, a movie that Dave saw and basically no one else saw this weekend. Yes, yes. She Said had a very disappointing box office, like two-ish million dollars in a 
wide release, very, very poor, very disappointing, continuing the trend of adult dramas more or less struggling at the box office, unfortunately, which uh, also is unfortunate because I think she said is a, you know, genre, subgenre, which is the journalist journalism movie pursuit of a, a story movie that is quite popular and, and well-liked and, and a familiar formula for a reason because it's often very effective. Uh, she said, of course, is about the recent developments, which of course is the Liz Tui, Jody Cantor pursuit to tell the Harvey Weinstein sexual misconduct uh, Miramax Weinstein Company story in the New York Times, which of course came out in uh, 2017. And, you know, me and you, we remember this. I think most people remember this. This is relatively recent news, this story. And I think that's what makes it a bit different from a movie like All the President's Men or Spotlight, you know, the, the beacons of this genre, which came out just a bit further removed from the events they are dramatizing, right? Uh, everything with Me Too and the, the reckoning that that caused, uh, gratefully, of course, is still very fresh, very new with people, right? Like Weinstein... He got say he had a sentencing like less than a year ago, right? This is very very fresh, but nonetheless, we have she said come out. Um, you know that story got a Pulitzer Prize. The reporters made it into a book, and now they've we've adapted this book into a film. Uh, Maria Schrader, the German actor and director who made Unorthodox for Netflix, uh, is the director at the helm here. And then you cast it with, you know, I think two big time well liked directors, Carrie Mul- uh, actors Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan, and I think it's she says is good. It's effective. It hits all those notes you expect from a journalism journalism story. I think the one thing that I think holds she said back is that this story and like the way this story is told, it doesn't quite have as much dramatic tension uh, as some other you know paragons of this genre. I think that's the one thing that can maybe make or break uh, a journalism drama where if you don't see those reporters feeling like they're racing against the clock or in some kind of personal danger, whatever it might be, then you might be lacking a bit of tension, a bit of bit of drama. I think she said maybe fall, falls more in line with a movie like The Post, the Spielberg movie uh, recently about the, the Panama Papers. You know, um, that, that being said, I think Kazan and Mulligan are really good especially carrie mulligan like she just makes the most badass like journalist i've ever seen like i think everyone would just immediately uh tell her whatever she asked if, if they were questioned <laughs> by her uh nonetheless i think the uh really the, the shiny moments of she said would be these two scenes with uh two victims of harvey weinstein when they're being uh interviewed uh and that would be Samantha Morton playing Zelda Perkins and Jennifer Ely playing Laura Madden. And they were two key sources that went on the record to help push the New York Times to publish a story when they did. And those two scenes, I think are, she said, it's most dramatic, most personal, most uh, affecting. You know, obviously it's a, it's a terrible story that everyone knows at this point. But, you know, when you, when you see it, I think kind of, uh, dramatized via the, the personal individual side of that story. I think that's where you really get into the, the nitty gritty of it. And like, it, it feels, you know, most, uh, 
most affecting. You know, you have Andre Brower as Dean Bacay, the New York Times, and Patricia Clarkson as Rebecca Corbett. Uh, they don't get a whole lot to do. They're only in it just a little bit. Although I did think Andre Brower was really great as Bacay, particularly when he's just like basically telling Weinstein to fuck off on the phone. She said does a makes a clear decision to not put Harvey Weinstein in the movie. They just show him like from the back and they have his voice in the film, but it's really a story about a movie about the reporters and the reporters meeting uh, some of the victims that end up, you know, helping them tell that story. So it's kind of been pegged as a, you know, Oscar contender. You know, I think it's kind of like a, probably a back half, like best picture nominee might get in there. And on the acting side of things, they're running Carrie Mulligan and supporting actress, which might help her get through. Uh, we'll see about that. Obviously, Carrie Mulligan uh, nominated multiple times just two years ago, a promising young woman. So she's on the awards uh, season mind for sure. But yeah, I think she said, you know, it's a it's a really good, really solid journalism movie, but doesn't quite reach the highs of like the best of the genre, which, of course, is, is totally fine. You know, I think um, it was it was kind of interesting to watch this movie really knowing where it's going the whole time because it's so fresh, you know, and I think that might be more of a fault to some people than it is to me, but uh, yeah, I would still recommend it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Love Carrie Mulligan. Obviously I think she's one of the, it's just one of the highest hit rates in terms of mm. the films that she makes, but you know, I hear Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan at the top of this. And then I think about some of the more, well known of these you know like the post or spotlight those all have much bigger actors at the top and you know the small box office almost feels like if this was like florence Pugh as the lead would that have gotten more people to go or is it that the story if it's hard to like understand why this one flopped because i I think people are interested in this i wonder if maybe there's also some fatigue around the story because yeah i mean weinstein recently was just in the news i i forgot if his case is was he sentenced recently was that he was sentenced in the u.s but he has other pending charges i believe he has charges in london still pending and whatever um <laughs> he gone for sure yeah. but um i mean yeah to that point all the president's men stars robert redford and dustin hoffman just a bit of yeah. a different caliber of star there exactly so i wonder if that would have made a difference but i i, I can't wait to check it out when i get a chance uh add it to my list of uh must-sees for the year but let's uh Let's keep it moving to smaller screen, bigger star, Florence Pugh, as I was just mentioning, um, in The Wonder on Netflix. Um, Yeah, you know, I had an interesting experience with this movie where I I really felt like the first half of it or so, I was like, "Ah, I don't know if this is my cup of tea. I don't know if this movie is really what I'm looking for. And then things really start to flip and shift with it. And I felt like the second half, I was really sucked in and really like into the movie and what it was trying to say. And things started to kind of click for me. Did you have that same feeling? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, The wonder kind of right away, you understand the, the core of the conflict, you know, we're set in a, 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 you know, like countryside, Ireland, 1862, not too soon after the, of course, infamous potato famine. Right. And Pew's character is brought in as an English nurse to figure out what's up with this titular wonder, this girl who hasn't eaten for four months. But it's quite clear right away that like 
obviously some such shit's going on. There's some fraudulent behavior in this village. Scammers are about. And it's, you know, I think like that tension of like, hmm, what's going to happen? Like, well, you know that like I was pretty convinced that like the movie wasn't going to suddenly have some divine turn and like there's be some real miracle shit going on. Right. But I think the movie has to progress far enough to bring you to that point where Pew's character tells the truth to the people that want to know, but then she's not believed. And then you actually get the real tension of like, what are they going to do? Are they, is she just going to give up and let this girl die? Or is she going to find, find some way to uh, take matters into her own hands? We kind of have to get to that point, right? Because the, the first half is a lot of uh, observation and uh, uh, thinking basically. <laughs> um but yeah, I think once it kind of rat- ratches it up in that second half, it's like, oh, okay, this actually, I think it wraps up uh, like just neatly enough, I think. Um, and overall, it had a bit of an atmospheric uh, vibe as a as a period piece in the countryside. So yeah, I still had a pretty good time with it. I definitely had a good time with it. Um, you, you know, I think, as I was saying, the first half as... Pew is like meeting this this ultra religious family, um, kind of talking with the count the council, laying the groundwork of like who everybody is. There's there's like an air of mystery to it, which I think is like the main thing that kept me interested. But once Pew finds out, you know how how the family is actually like feeding her and and kind of keeping this ruse going, and you have the the. I don't know if it's a confrontation between Lib and uh, the the daughter there. Um, mm-hmm. Then, then I think things really start to shift. Anna is the daughter's name, um, it, because when when she like discloses the sexual assault that she was experiencing, sexual abuse yeah. from the brother, how the you know the brother died and she was blamed for it, and the family is like, like basically like making her like keep up this this ruse uh, this this lie to like mm-hmm. create some like kind of like absolution um, yeah of this like, like horrible act is re- religious way to pass and thus free her brother from eternal damnation basically yeah like uh just a yeah bizarre. i think yeah completely bizarre but you know kind of going with the theme of like you believe these stories people tell themselves stories all the time and you know it has this like fourth wall breaking opening and ending yeah and then the the imagery of the the bird and the cage toy that you flip around i mean it's all like a bit on the nose but also i think like fairly effective which i <laughs> i i ended up enjoying more by the end and yeah that second half when pew is just figuring out how am i going to convince this girl to like accept her story and then believe this new story I thought was pretty interesting in order Mm -hmm. for her to like, you know, believe that she died and now is like reborn as Pew's like daughter as Nan. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just, I thought that was all pretty fascinating. Um, I think like going back to the English, similarly, I didn't like the love story in this. Right. So you have um, Tom Burke. Yeah. Tom Burke as the, the journalist, William Byrne, who's, in England kind of writing up this like, I don't know, interest piece on this. And mm-hmm. I, I just don't believe Florence Pugh and, the, and him would end up together. I'm sorry. I gotta Come say on. the first sex scene though, that I was dying when she, <laughs> when she's like, thank you. And he's like, 
no, thank you. <laughs> they both laugh. I was like, dude, that's actually perfect and yeah. quite realistic, honestly. It, it, no, totally. <laughs> Completely agree. Um, yeah, I definitely found that funny. I think I just was like, man, Florence Pugh is one of the, like, I don't know, one of the, like, most uh, magnetic people. Yes, and effervescent. Yeah, just does not exude that same energy. So not 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 quite a match, but that's fine. I mean, this is just a, a Pew showcase through and through. And I think totally. she's great. Yeah. She can yeah, do this yeah. kind of role in her sleep. Oh, definitely. And I mean, this movie's directed by Sebastian Lelio, the mm-hmm. Chilean filmmaker. We talked about his last movie, Gloria Bell, a few years back. Uh, honestly, it, it seems like Florence was probably just kind of able to squeeze this movie into her schedule and, and, and got it done. They made this last year. Um Netflix picked it up after Telluride. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a movie that sl- slowly shows you that it has more on the mind. And it actually does make good on that fourth wall breaking opening about like the stories we convince yourselves. Because when that starts, it's like, oh, it's a bit hokey. And you have Florence Pugh's voice lording over you in the background telling you the thesis of the movie. And next thing you know, you're transported to 1860s Ireland, and it takes you a while to bring it back around. But they do bring it back around, so I uh, I enjoyed it. And yeah, it is nice to see an actor of the caliber of Florence Pugh, who's so in demand for higher budget, bigger name things, to also find a way to make time for a much smaller personal movie that is really centered around her her, her acting abilities. So we love to see it. So this year, we got Don't Worry, Darling. The Wonder. She also was in Hawkeye. I mean, what was your favorite Pew performance in the past year? Are we forgetting something? Uh, or is that it? No, that's it, right? Black Widow, I guess, was the year before. That was, yeah, never mind. Never mind. And then she, she'll be in Dune 2 next year. Yes. Um, it feels like I she's feel, more present than, than that, for sure. For sure. Uh, I think this would be my favorite performance of hers but i probably actually liked watching don't worry darling more <laughs> despite yeah. its flaws we talked about that check the review yeah no i agree i i think she's great in this but again it almost feels like she kind of sleepwalks with this like broken character who's like cast into this psychological drama like mm-hmm. it feels like a lot of what she's done i actually almost feel like something like um like hawkeye you know where she's kind of like out there and having to be a little bit more fun and like she gets to yeah. do an accent that that almost feels like stealing the scenes that she's yeah in. yeah i almost want to see her just doing more of that stuff it's just so much more fun so well, b- between dune 2 and oppenheimer she's in two movies upcoming that are loaded with a-listers so i feel like it'll be more in that line because she's not gonna mm-hmm. command the screen because there's so many stars in them she's also gonna be in the the zach braff movie next year a good person yeah. um her, that, that, that'll be a rich text when that one comes out for sure um so a, a lot lots to dig into i'm excited to to talk more about her but why don't we um <laughs> why don't we move forward to another movie that i was uh interested to watch which is the menu um and mostly for exactly who's on your screen dave you know, anya taylor joy you know get her and ray, ray fines and a cook and or get them in a cook get them in a the same same scene let them cook and you know yep. hopefully you're gonna get something great did we get that with the menu yeah i like the menu quite a bit you know it's a black comedy suspenseful thriller satire amalgamation of a few genres type movie but uh, a bit of a throwback to you know 
movie making of the past in that in that regard. I, I liked it quite a bit. It's uh, got a lot of fun performances, a lot of showy uh, set pieces or scenes. And uh, at the end of the day, like you said, Annie Taylor-Joy, just one of uh, the stars of the moment, one of the stars of today and tomorrow. And it's just great to watch her uh, do what she does because she's great. She's, she's absolutely great in it. I also really love Ray Fiennes being this like just complete maniac in like the best way possible in this um and, justin and slowick yeah there, there's some fun stuff going on around them obviously everybody gets to be like kind of hamming it up in this right i mean like nicholas holt is on like level 10 in his hamminess it's pretty <laughs> stupid and ridiculous <laughs> i don't mind it though um and yeah you, you know you get like john leguizamo which i was like okay uh, he's actually pretty perfectly cast i think like mm-hmm. Um, yeah. you know this former star who people don't remember Hong Chow um, yes. is I think a scene stealer in this a really great performance from her but she's also dialed up like everybody is dialed up in this which I appreciate Um, you know I think the menu could be considered this like commentary on society today in some respect which mm. I actually don't know if like those messages hit that well for me but i think if you look at it it's talking about like just like the restaurant genre and like the whole like industry there's a lot more to like agree with there um yeah. so i think it, it kind of depends on what you want to take away from the movie but i thought it was like fairly effective it's just like a searing critique on like high food like high food yes. like high, uh, high um deli- what are they, delicacies uh, fine dining fine dining thank you yeah no, I think that's exactly right. Because early on, uh, before the movie really like opens up all the way, they're setting up Nicholas Holt's character as someone you despise, as this like some food snob type who's like really obsessed with fine dining and like that's their personality, that's their number one hobby. Which those people do exist. And when I'm watching it, I'm like, yep, these are the people I just don't like because I just don't feel that way about dining and food the way a person like Holt's character does. And then the movie kind of like moves it around. It's like, oh, is this like an eat the rich type movie? And it goes into that a little bit. It's a bit surface level. I don't think that's a really a, a new a new perspective, a new commentary. It doesn't really shine anything new in that regard. But then the way it brings it back around again, like you said, where everything gets revealed about the the, the presence of the hamburger, the cheeseburger mm-hmm. in this movie, and I think it speaks more about to like the joy of uh, cooking or eating, whatever it might be. And that, I think, is a bit more of a universal uh, perspective. Again, not that we're really seeing anything new in this in terms of the commentary. But I think that's a more, like, enjoyable um, perspective to be with than, like, the kind of blatant, like, eat the rich. Let me let me fuck over these these uh, these rich assholes as the service worker that I am. You know, it's like, all right, like, whatever. Um, and I, I liked it more when it was a bit concerned with... Uh, you know, telling fine dying the fuck off a little bit, you know, like I tell her joy's character, Margot, she just starts like laughing and like being completely like not about everything that's going on because she's like a normal person, you know, mm-hmm. like that was the stuff I jive with the most. Yeah. And I, I also thought the question about like, who are you trying to be in, in, in regards to Margot as Aaron, this escort, you know, and when he's like, do you want to be on the side of the guests or do you want to be on the side of the servers in this case? And like how, because I, I forgot what it was that she like called 
like for help or something like that they said like oh you are on the side of the 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 diners and then she kind of like flipped it around by like Mm -hmm. basically just never giving into this guy's ego right um i thought stopped eating sending food back whatever it might be just exactly not, not not going with the program not following the menu I thought that was really great, not only as like, a, how is she going to get out of this situation, but the idea of like, you know, she's this escort, someone who is not on the same level of status as everybody else in this room, you know, is being told you are not supposed to be here, but is kind of being put it lumped in with all these people just by the fact that she's in this room with these people and like mm-hmm. how she's perceived like um, by the world. I thought that was like a fit, like a pretty interesting commentary. Um you know, just a, a few moments that I really liked. I, I liked when he sends out the, like, I think it was like a taco shell with like all the things on it. And like people start freaking out, like um the reviews from like the critic of that got restaurants closed down or like yes. John Leguizama yep. and his guys had later like tax fraud, um, yeah. like printed in the tortilla was. or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I thought that was pretty funny to like see them all start to kind of realize. Yep. Um, I also like it obviously starts turning incredibly dark, but the, like the guys can run. I think it was the fifth course, whatever they called the men's folly. I thought that was pretty great where the guys were allowed to like try to run away. And the girls all came in and were like, help us. And she was like, Oh no, this is my idea. Like I thought that was pretty good. Right. And the the one guy gets a cupcake for being the last one to get caught. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That was great. Great. I I loved how uh, towards the end, uh, it was like the Nicholas Holt character, right? He's like, he's about it. He doesn't want to run. You know, he's happy to be here. This is his mm-hmm. thing. And uh, uh, Slalik, Ray Fiennes, gets to finds the way to uh, take him out uh, by just embarrassing the shit out of him. Like, yeah, you might, you might know the definitions of all these cooking techniques and cooking devices and approaches to cuisine, mm-hmm. but you're not a fucking cook, yep, you, you little shit. bitch. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, obviously quite dark but also i think pretty uh pretty interesting um Mm -hmm. yeah overall i liked it i I don't think this is like a movie that i'm gonna like find myself searching for when it comes out but it's one that if people are looking for like a decent like afternoon watch it's definitely worth it yeah i I was i wasn't actually sure like what tone the movie would would strike because it doesn't fully lean into the suspense side of things it never really goes down the horror side either but you definitely could see a version of the menu that leans into like a different side of genre. You know, I think mm-hmm. the menu kind of sticks down the middle by taking from a bunch of different genres. But, you know, like when when Margot calls for help and like the, the Coast Guard guy shows up and then the twist with that happens. Like, I think that was actually yeah. like a really effective thing. And like like that sense of like dread, like sets back in and like they really do, I think, a good job of keeping you as the viewer on, on your toes with the plot, which is, I think, a lot of fun. Uh, notably, this movie was directed by Mark Mylod, who, pretty prolific guy, but probably most notably for working on Succession recently. And some of the lesser-known actors that are in the room in the menu are actually uh, Succession, you know, supporting characters as well. This was originally supposed to be directed by Alexander Payne and starring Emma Stone. And then, obviously, mm-hmm. it moved forward. And Obviously, I love Anya Taylor-Joy so much. Happy to see her in this. Although I do love Emma Stone as well. Definitely would be a different movie, I think, if Alexander Payne yeah. approached this. Probably a bit bit headier, a bit... Um, maybe even a bit more fulfilling on the thematic side of things. But I think what we got was still a lot of fun. 
definitely a lot of fun. I also just enjoy seeing Anya Taylor-Joy getting these looks. And especially, you know, we saw her at the beginning of the year in one of our favorite movies of the year in The Northman. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, you look at what's up next for her. She has Furiosa coming yep. out in two years. Just but finished filming it. Super Mario Brothers is like the only thing that's on her officially on her docket next year, which I'm like, we need to get this girl working. We need to get her some more roles. In a sense, she has been working, though, right? Like in the in the last calendar year, you had Last Night in Soho, The Northman, The Menu and Amsterdam. Yep. You know, I, I, I mean, it's, up it's and down, up and down, down range, but like all big time directors that she was involved with. Right. Yep. She just made movies with Edgar Wright, David O. Russell and Robert Eggers and pretty good in two years. She'll be in a movie from George Miller. Like she's, she's crushing it for sure. Um, I'm it, sure she's turning down shit every day to be, in. Oh, I'm sure. And I think more, even more exciting is the fact that, you know, the Northman was so good and we're just probably going to see Eggers getting bigger and bigger stuff. And him and her seem to have a pretty good uh, working relationship. So I think that could be one of her, like um, one of her director, like companions moving forward. So really great stuff i uh, really enjoy Annie taylor joy oh but david uh, speaking of what you just mentioned she is attached to be in robert eggers nosferatu adaptation there you go as of right now so yes, oh yeah and uh, bill um bill skarsgård is playing nosferatu right yeah which that's just is gonna like perfect <laughs> it's gonna be so good um anyways that's gonna do it for movies this week let's let's transition to music we're gonna be starting off with an artist we've never talked about but with an album that's getting a lot of acclaim ways blood and the and in the darkness hearts aglow ways blood um an artist i've been like aware of and like i've heard a few songs but never fully really dove into them but with this album coming out i was excited to give her uh, you know an, another look and i i knew that titanic rising was one of the most like critically acclaimed albums of 2019 that we just like didn't talk about so i was like yeah. ah, you know maybe eventually we'll get to this and uh it's i think this is a great time to jump in because this newest album in the darkness hearts aglow i i think is really impressive and really well crafted but i also as i was listening to it, i was like dave's gonna fucking hate this shit <laughs> like he, he's not gonna enjoy this at all uh you know, I, I liked it more than I thought uh, I would because it's not my genre cup of tea. But I think um, Natalie Menning, Waste Blood, I think her, her vocals are just very unique, very striking, and ultimately did hold my attention throughout the whole listen. And I liked that a lot. Uh, and I think some of the songs where the instrumentation uh, kind of picks up or goes through some kind of progression, combining that with, I think, her very noticeable vocals, uh, yeah, was uh was 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 quite good. You know, I think um at the end of the day, she just I think really stands out to me as a kind of unique one of one vocalist. Completely agree. She has a very old school feel to her. You know, um, she's gotten comparisons to like Karen Carpenter. There's like Joni Mitchell like um, vibes to her at times, and um, I think in terms of her song crafting, I mean her writing is is excellent this is a basically a follow-up she said to titanic rising uh, a trilogy of albums that she's doing uh, we don't know when the third one will be coming out but about like this impending disaster of sorts this is coming from the middle of this disaster and the last right. one i'm sure will be like aftermath so interested to see when that third one comes out but she makes these long elaborate songs and has these 
beautiful build up build up in almost every song with these like really great flourishes um you know i think one of the best examples of that for me was um the song children of the empire yeah. you know like you get halfway through the song and you get this like mandolin like kind of like yeah. sp- infused in there and then the song kind of drops back out builds back up with these swells of strings and then kind of drops back out again just to build up it was really impressive and you know a lot of that she even stopped singing during so it's really just this like instrumental arrangement that was just like you know something we really haven't heard to this level this year i thought um so i really liked that one i think the opener is great it's not just me it's everybody is probably this is what gave me the Joni mitchell vibes i was like okay this is fantastic and she's just sounds like an angel on this right yeah, you know, uh, those are two of the songs I noted for sure. I think Children of the Empire, like you said, like when those string melodies really pick up and then the chorus is, I think, quite quite rousing. I like that a lot. Um, I also really like Grapevine. I think her vocals are strong on that one, as expected, yep. but also the drums when the drums come in, uh, kick in. Uh, yeah. It just all kind of comes together. Probably my favorite songwriting um, was Hearts Aglow, where, you know, she's talking about basically this uh world ending event and just like wanting to just spend time with this person that she's interested in i think that's really one of the standout themes from this album is her like perspective on love and how she gets that across the album isn't about like this like really like strong overwhelming romantic love but more so just this like spending time being seen being together you know the first song um it's not just me it's everybody she talks about like being alone at this party and wanting to like connect to other people and then kind of coming to the conclusion other people are probably feeling the exact same way and like how can how can we connect around our loneliness so i, I like her perspective is just on you know love and connection and how you deal with despair and you know our, our mortality through it all you know another song i just wanted to shout out that was i really like near the end and is a bit more in the uh like i don't know traditional um feeling of of songwriting because a lot of these songs are fairly non-traditional is twin flame i really liked it has a very like i don't know it feels a bit more poppy than the other ones which is probably why i liked it but i think she again just sounds great on it and i like the uh the like ticking that kind of goes through the ticking percussion that kind of drives the song so um overall just really impressed with this uh i think we might be talking about it in a few weeks when we do our end of the year we'll see but um why don't we keep it moving as we switch from i don't know is this indie rock i suppose to saweetie where we're talking rap hip-hop uh Let's just get down and dirty with the P U S S Y. <laughs> What's that? I, I don't know, but <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it's something I think uh, Sweetie can tell us about in the single Life EP because right. man, she's she's talking about it in pretty much every song, and um, I think I think this is an EP where the first three songs I was like, oh let's fucking go it, it petered out a little bit but those first three songs man i was like yep sweetie i like this i'm down with it that's exactly right um yeah this is the third sweetie ep notably the sweetie debut album is still on the way pretty bitch music she tells us on the single life ep it's coming soon but it's still not here <laughs> so instead <laughs> we have another ep from sweetie I'll take um it. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's right. Um, right off the jump, don't say nothing. Lyrically, very reminiscent of Glorilla's Nut Quick we yes. just heard last week. And I was like, yep, give me all these songs. I love this yeah. shit. I, I love I love hearing uh, women stop on dudes rapping. It's great. Um, and I think Sweetie, obviously, people know. like She has, I think, really fun flow. And when you put that on like something classic to her, which would be Bay Area Bounce, it really comes together. It sounds great. Doesn't um, don't, don't say nothing sound like Big Fish to you from Vince? Oh, that's a good. That's a nice call. Interesting. It, like the flow and the beat just are so bouncy, like that. Really right. reminded me of it. Yeah, totally. Um, I think on, on Pussy, the the hook singing is a bit bit weird. Like I don't know. I I didn't I didn't love that part of it, but I like the rapping. Um, I think actually no reception is interesting because that's a bit more of an introspective look from Sweetie, who of course has been, you know, in the tabloid BS for some time following her, you know, split with Quavo and perhaps association with little baby as well. Like it is kind of interesting to hear her perspective and being like how she basically just unplugs and just doesn't choose to engage at all with that mm-hmm. stuff. And it almost speaks to why she maybe is like up and down or in and out of the public eye sometimes. And that's like, seems to be very clearly very her choice on the other side of things. She's still very much like finally crafting an album she's been working on for several years at this point. So I think it's a bit interesting. Ultimately, this is a taster, you know, this is a holdover type release. And it, it is a bit interesting that we still haven't got that album because she has released some monster singles that weren't on any of these EPs. Like think of tap in, and of course, best friend with Doja Cat at the beginning of last year. Like she's been dropping some bangers, and then filling out with some EPs as well, you know. And um, I, I hope the album delivers because I feel like there's a lot of like anticipation for it. On the other hand, maybe there's not as much pressure on it now because there's just so many female MCs now. Like we're not like holding Sweetie up on the highest pedestal anymore mm. that we might have been back in 2017 when Icy Girl came out and everyone was really excited about you know yeah. this brand new rapper. So. Uh, maybe it's something somewhere in the middle with that, but yeah, I think it's you know for for a taster holdover EP, you know, there's there's a few songs to like. What more could you ask for? Yeah, and she seems to really be finding a niche in using these like two thousands to nineties beats and just like reusing them for herself. Pussy <laughs> using the the juicy um, beat, obviously, and uh, my type using the yeah um, freak is a freak a leak. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I. I I kind of don't hate Tap that. In, she's just same kinda, thing. Yeah. yeah, she's just leaning into this. Like, I'm gonna reuse this and just make it my own. And uh, I mean, the songs are great, so might might as well keep going with it. I hope she continues doing it. But yeah, I agree. I think this is just uh, a holdover. But I'll take it. Uh, give us more sweetie, absolutely. And we'll we'll be adding a sweetie song to our now Salja Best of 2022 playlist. So check that out. But Dave, time to talk about one of your favorite rappers. Our guy Roddy Rich, and I say that in jest because if I remember correctly, you're not, you, you don't really like ride with Roddy Rich, right? Well, I didn't ride with the last album, Live Life Fast, came out less than a year ago, December 2021. That was the sophomore record from Roddy, first release since The Box, of course, took off <laughs> off his debut album and became one of the longest running number ones of the 2020s thus far. And Roddy basically fell flat on his face with the follow-up record. We talked about it. We didn't like it. There weren't any hits on it. 
I'm not surprised to see him come back to the well so soon, given how poorly the last full length went. This, of course, Feed the Streets 3, the uh, trilogy capper to his two mixtapes that really put him on the map, where the first hits of his uh, came from, of course, people know. And I do think Roddy did a better job of getting back to what makes his best music, his best qualities, his best abilities are much more evident on Feed the Streets 3 than they were on Live Life Fast. Is this a great mixtape? No. I think there's still a lot of sameness in the production. Oh, and I think, think Ro- Roddy as a lyricist is uh, still quite up and down. But the highlights on this, I think, are speaking more to, I think, what I like about Roddy Rich, who really came up and rode the wave and led the way of that melodic kind of auto-croony style of Southern hip-hop, uh, West Coast hip-hop that we've gotten over the last five years. Like When he does that well, he does it very well. He can do it good. And I think the moments of him really in his bag at his most comfortable on Feed the Streets 3 are, you know, it's good to hear that because Live Life Fast, I think, was just a lot of like uninspiring singing from him. He's not a great singer. And when he does it, it's very up and down, but usually down. I like it more when he really combines the two with the hip hop. And there are some moments that I liked on Feed the Streets 3. You just fucking fried him, dude. You were like, <laughs> the, everything sounds the same. His lyricism's crap, but it's still better than the last album. Man, just ah, uh, uh, that that was great to hear. Uh, it was like so many. It was like such a veiled like compliment in a way. But it's I think you're exactly right. I found myself just like I, I didn't really enjoy this much at all. Um, the the sameness for me. I mean, it, this felt like fairly generic. You know, I I, got, I listened to this and. I listened to this right after I listened to Sweetie and I'm like, Oh man, like just the, the difference in like energy and mm-hmm. like confidence and like uniqueness was so drastic. And it really feels like Roddy is just kind of trying to be like one of those like down the middle type rappers. Who's kind of using like these beats that sound incredibly familiar. He, I don't feel like he's like doing anything that's super out there. And, mm-hmm. or like really pops in comparison to his peers and uh, i don't know I, I didn't find myself too impressed with this other than probably twin with little dirk which i thought dirk was like hard as hell didn't he yeah but <laughs> that's the thing is i was like damn like dirk shows up and just fucking steals the song it's like okay <laughs> for cool. sure <laughs> I, I don't really don't know if that's what the takeaway that roddy wanted from this album but okay that's where we're yeah. at yeah no for me it's a lot of moments right like you got a short song like stop breathing which i think is pretty good um a song like fade away um that that hook melody it's a bit slower but i think that's actually roddy he sounds really comfortable like the the fade away like he just like actually like sounds like really smooth when he does that sometimes and like some moments like that i think like stood out to me um heavier again the hook catchy he's like da 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 got heavier da 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 got heavier like stuff oh, yeah. like that just kind of it's a bit stickier than some of his more recent music, at least. Um, my favorite song is Number One Freak with Ty Dolla Sign. Is that a raunchy, misogynistic hip-hop song? A- absolutely. But God, is that shit catchy as hell. Like, I don't know. I loved it, man. It's a toxic song, but I really dug, really dug it. Uh, yeah, I-, I agree. That was another one that stood out to me and just sounded different, different energy to it. Maybe he needs to do like a collab album with someone or find someone he can collab with. But 
I think I, if I we if we could just like get some better production, like you're on Atlantic Records, I, surely the beat budget could be increased because it's just uninspiring. You know, it's yeah. not like he he has enough vocal talent that with better beats things would be more evident as catching it catchy you know and the the first record please forgive me for being antisocial you know i thought the beats were better on that you know and just more inspired choices right like when he would have like background choir on some of his songs where then if he like slowed it down or was doing more of a storytelling type song it just kind of livened him up but when he doesn't have i think those other flourishes it's really up to roddy alone to stand out and i don't think he has that consistency to really carry a whole album that way at least not right now and then it's it's perhaps even like eye-opening or disappointing depending on how you look at it when you hear the last song letter to my son where he's incredibly introspective Mm -hmm. and 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 inward looking you know i mean i like the way he talks about it he's like uh i tried this i I did the street life you ain't missing nothing you know whatever he says Mm -hmm. you know it's like wow it's like it's a really perspective and like cool to hear that from him because you don't really hear poignant lyrics yeah. with any consistency from Roddy, but he did do it, I think, really effectively on a slower song to end, end the tape, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I don't know, maybe in time he'll find more consistency, but I don't even know if I need that from him. I would just, like, better beats for mm-hmm. funner hits, you know? Just yeah. make some fun stuff, because when, when I think of people that do the melodic hip-hop type of stuff, he is one of the first people I would think of, because, like, his hits are hits for a reason. He has some great tracks right. to his name. So, hopefully he can hone in but i do think this is in a better direction than we had you know 11 months ago Mm -hmm. no yeah i i definitely think it's a step up and you know you hear a song like aston martin truck which i think is one of the hits from this quote unquote Mm -hmm. um and like there's something there where like this this could be catchier this could be elevated and it just kind of goes on too long it falls flat and it's like maybe yeah i think you're right maybe if you get some better collaborators or people working with him to refine this a bit he can recapture that magic but a lot of it just kind of clicking through it's like i don't know if if this is anything Mm -hmm. special right now so he's still only 24 he just turned 24 well a lot of a lot of time for him to find his stride and make better stuff but i don't think i don't think this is going to be the one feed the streets three but let's uh let's wrap up today with a, a group that has been a part of nostalgia lore from almost the get-go, Brockhampton. And uh, I guess this is the Brockhampton eulogy, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Brockhampton is ending. Brockhampton is saying goodbye. And just right off the jump, we're going to review both of the new Brockhampton albums, the two final albums in very Brockhampton fashion. We're going to re- review the family, and we're also going to review TM. Check the description for the link to whatever album review you're not listening to or watching right now. And also check the link for our Brockhampton album rankings that we did in 2021 after Roadrunner came out. We reviewed and ranked their first six records, and now they have their seventh and eighth albums out, and we'll talk about them now. Yeah, man, Brockhampton, it's a... What a whirlwind, huh? To drop eight albums in a five-year stretch. Uh, Just an incredibly prolific run with many ups and many downs in the public eye. And, you know, they flirted with and walked back on breaking up and ending before, but I don't know how you could listen to the family and see how they were moving the past weekend and not believe them. Like this was a cathartic 
breakup album from the group the family was and uh yeah i i definitely think they're done yeah i, th- I think they're done uh how are you feeling about it Cause you, you've been riding with them almost from from the jump right that's right yeah i picked up somewhere in 2017 with saturation trilogy was coming out i saw them perform in early 2018 which was awesome um I remember exactly where I was when Amir was kicked out of the group. I was in Venice, Italy, and I like checked my phone and I like literally I remember sitting down on a bench in this little ass plaza and I was like, "What the fuck? Amir's gone?" We talked about that when that happened. We don't have to get into that now. Um, but yeah, definitely a huge fan of the group and again, we did a whole rankings on them because I think they're the most exciting rap group of the last uh, 5 years without question. Um and a big part of that has been how prolific they are, but also how wide ranging of genres they've dabbled in as a musical group. And also how uh, they really platformed their own voices and kind of built people up. You know, artists like Joba really came into their own in the back half of the Brockhampton run, for example. And, you know, to hear the family before we knew TM was coming out, to hear the family and realize that it's a Kevin Abstract solo affair vocally, be like, huh wow, man, they're really on some bad terms, aren't they? Because that's how I felt listening to it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin, Kevin's really let, letting it fly, you know, sh- spilling some tea, telling you how he felt about a lot of different stuff that happened because a lot of things happened with them, you know? And then you, you hear that last track and he's really congratulatory and uh, grateful for all his guys and shouts everyone out by name. And the next thing you know, they're releasing another album. TM stands for The Mountain. And you find out that that's like a traditional Brockhampton album with everyone in the mix vocally. And turns out that was resurrected from 2021 recording sessions and almost makes good on the promises Brockhampton often made, but never actually delivered on, which was trying to save some of their past uh, unreleased albums like Puppy and Team Effort. So like to hear TM be just like, that's just another Brockhampton record. Look, there it is for you. I hope you enjoy it. the thank you, thank you to the fans type thing. And then also contrast that with the family and really having Kevin just bear his soul out and just let go of everything he's been holding on to the past few years. It's quite the juxtaposition. And they both are really, I think, serving like two different masters and with the intent. But also how incredibly Brockhampton to release a album after the final album came out, you know? Right. Yeah, uh, of course, because they had to stoke the flames that they're never actually done. <laughs> I've seen people saying that, you know, uh, this isn't it. Uh, people are in denial uh, for sure. You know, I think the, like my main takeaway was exactly what you said. Like, oh, these they must not be on great terms um, if we're getting this like solo Kevin album out first. And then listening to that and TM back to back, it's like. I kind of like just like the Kevin album, you know, like I thought TM had some okay moments, but like the Kevin album was so much more in the lane of music that I like and uh, felt a bit more jubilant, you know, and uh, I think Mm -hmm. um, emotionally was what I was hoping to get. The mountain feels a bit, I don't know, it it feels exactly like you said, like they revived some tracks that maybe they weren't planning on releasing initially or were planning on going back to and it just didn't feel as final. So I kind of wish they almost did it in exact or uh, opposite order. 
I completely agree. I think the family definitely feels like an ending. You know, a song or an album with a song called The Ending would make sense, right? But <laughs> I mean, you listen to the ending, you listen to the final track, Brockhampton. That gives, I think, a Brockhampton fan a lot of closure hearing a song like Brockhampton, right? Mm-hmm. Where Kevin really opens up about stuff that happened, yep. explaining how the boys really drifted apart over money and creative differences. Not, 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 not surprising reasons, of course, but you actually hear it from the source, you know, mm-hmm. like him and Jabari had a disagreement and the relationship changed. Flash forward. Did they just perform two days ago, their final show at the uh, Fonda theater on Hollywood Boulevard? They did. They were all there. They all seem to be vibing, but it's clear from these songs on the family that things really did change. And that's why, like, I'm not necessarily yearning for them to stick together because it clearly just isn't like a tenable thing from a creative side of things, even if they're all cordial and kind of grateful for the run they had together, right? Right. Like, the, in the next few days, they're doing a uh, I Miss the Band Already radio show on the AMP app from Amazon. And that's including multiple people of the group. Joba tweeted it out as well as Kevin. Like, they all seem to be, like, cordial and cool but it also seems like they're quite happy to start doing their own things right Mm -hmm. and i mean to me like hearing kevin speak on how he like reconnected with amir and then had to grapple with dom's reaction to that because dom had a very specific reason for uh why nothing to do with amir anymore like hearing something like that you know, and Kevin basically like being like, yeah, I'm like a complicated guy and I, I'm certainly not blameless and all of this. Like to hear, I think that level of candor, that frankness, mm-hmm. it, it just goes, I think, a long way with the fans. I would not recommend either of these records, but especially the family to anyone who is not intimately familiar with the Brockhampton story. Like clearly you should be starting way earlier if you just actually want to enjoy the music and understand what's going on. This is very in the weeds for the Brockhampton listener. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, uh, there's even just like references to like San Marcos and stuff like that. And if you're just listening, Mm -hmm. you're like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, I think something like you can't I I didn't know that you couldn't feel free until you took the blue paint off or something like that. That's a line that you just will not understand unless you know that saturation one, two and three happened, you know, and that it was like this amazing moment for the band. But I think also something that made them feel a bit like pigeonholed creatively. And I think also Mm -hmm. probably led to a lot of these conflicts because their star just started to rise so quickly. I mean, Um, and I I think what's great about the family too is Kevin's able to, I think weave in like meaningful lyricism about this topic while also making a good track. And I say, look no further than gold teeth where Kevin's flow is, is is amazing. Do we see each other? Hardly. Should we made together? Godly. (laughs) Yeah, and then what's he say? Like he basically says that they signed to RCA for too many records. It's like, did did we something, whatever? Probably, you know. However he says it, like, like wow. Not only does this song bang, but you're really saying some shit right now. Yeah, no, completely. Um, I mean, I I thought this whole thing was really great, but I think one of the songs that I really appreciated the way he talked about things, and I think this is where you get a lot of the the stuff with um, Amir. I think it's this song, and now I'm doubting myself. It's 37. Mm-hmm. I really liked that track yeah, the a lot. vocal effects were cool. Yeah, and I, I what I liked is, like, they, like, just, they, like, brought back the 
Sonics and they just put Kevin's like vocals right at the forefront. He sounds so crisp and confident. Mm -hmm. And I I just really loved that as like a switch up because I mean, this is a really produced album, which is, you know, something that's common for Brockhampton. They do a lot of splicing. They put in a lot of vocal effects and a lot of sounds and it's part of why you love them. But this is a scaled back one where it's just him talking and just kind of spilling the tea pretty great uh i I thought that was one that stood out to me um you know a couple other tracks i liked uh i liked the beginning and the end of the album is very like celebratory sounding like you know at the beginning you Mm -hmm. get take it back which feels like a throwback like kanye or or chance record sample very reminiscent isn't it yeah how could you not love it though (laughs) exactly and then you have RZA, the next song, RZA. and that also sounds, yeah, RZA, which also sounds just completely celebratory, yeah. right? So you have those two back to back. Ian, why don't you keep the band back together? I was like, oh man, they're getting right into it right away. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and then at the end, like you said, you get a couple of tracks in a row. Um, I thought The Family was one that really like mm-hmm. stood out to me, but then you get the ending and Brockhampton back to back, and it's like, fuck, like yeah this is so fucking good this is like this is exactly why people loved like chance or kanye when they were making stuff like this because this kind of music just fucking bangs and kevin can do this man i know like um the ending the willie hutch let me be the one soul sample is incredible (laughs) dude one of the best samples i've heard since like i i don't even know like yeah Um, i can't even think of it pablo maybe like people know soul sampling in hip-hop is tremendous when done well. Obviously, Kanye really helped pioneer this, or at least really popularize it. And this is like right up there with the appeal of that sort of thing, you know. And then, meanwhile, Kevin, Kevin actually raps and his lyrics. Him, he's like telling a really personal story about how he's trying to live his life and not have other people put expectations on him. And like that sample, it's just so moving, so affecting. Especially if you really had listened to the rest of the album and, and know everything that's been weighing on Kevin, you know. It's like, oh man, really love that one. And then to immediately hear the final track, Brockhampton, as we said, that really, to me, I was like, I'm listening to it. I was like, man, like, it's making me a little sad. I'm not going to lie. Like, just uh-huh. he- hearing where things went wrong. You kind of knew it already. You-, you understood it. But, like, to really hear him just saying, it's like, man, I really just hope everyone can just move on and be, be happy with their careers because that one's, that one's a bit tough to listen to. Not going to lie. Um, but on the other hand, like I said before, a song like Gold Teeth where you can bring this lyricism out into a, a song in a fun way. How about all that, you know, blowing up ain't all that, you know, really, they, yeah. they, they really, he's really interrogating, I think, fame and, and how their lives and their careers change at different parts in the Brockhampton arc. You know, you get a little uh, bare face vocals on the family, but for the most, that's like, the, I think the only moment where it's not Kevin. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I, um, Oh, also on uh, the final track too, Brockhampton, Obviously, he speaks a lot about his collaborators, his boys in the band and what happened. But he also kind of speaks on how like what they did without having radio hits and TikTok hits and not being on Mm -hmm. playlists and stuff like it's, I think, quite uh, wide ranging in the commentary and the the recap. So it were of what had happened, you know. So, uh, yeah, I I really, really enjoyed the family. And uh, I think it does. it, It does fitting, obviously. It feels fitting, obviously, as a final work, even if we didn't get everyone else in the group. I think that's actually the most surprising thing about it 
is how good it feels as a grace note for Rockhampton, despite Kevin being the only vocalist. Like you wouldn't have right. expected that. You would have thought this would have came off as super bitter and half-assed. And what's he say? The la- the label needs thirty five minutes of new music. Like you would have thought it sounded like that, but it doesn't come across that way. Right. And then we'll get into TM now. But like I mean, TM is more of like, hey man, this is what it used to be like, and here you go. So, do you have any other thoughts on the family before we switch to TM? Yeah, you know, just just two things. So, or I guess maybe three. So, boy band kind of starts with. Like, I don't know who's talking, but someone is saying, like, you know, that boy band shit, that's like the only kind of shit that Brockhampton could pull off. And like, it's true. Like, they were just such a unique, like, group that they could say that shit and kind of make people believe it and make it feel real to them in a sense, which I really appreciate it. Best boy band since One Direction. <laughs> One of the best lines from them of all time. Um, Big Pussy, um, the fourth track, I really liked for multiple reasons. It had a feeling like when you see people go into these like morning shows and do freestyles and like the beat just kind of keeps switching, going in different directions. And they just glide off of it. And of course, it starts off with this like jazz sample at the beginning. So you think it's going to be some like, I don't know, Kendrick shit, you know, or, or, some, or something like that. And then he's like, shut your bitch ass up. And it just flips and he just starts going. I just really loved that moment. Just thought it was great. Uh, you know, you already said all that, um, but I mean, come on, having all that like sa- like sample and like using that as the beats of the song. Are you kidding me? Like yeah, that TLC in there. Incredible. Um, and then also any way you want me. Um, that's just something that only like Brockhampton can do. And, and that's like feels so specific to them as like just this band, this group that became more than just a hip hop band. Right. They really like push themselves sonically and, and stylistically. And even if I don't love any way you want me, like, I think it's still interesting that they did like this almost like old school, like 60s, 70s, like pop sound in their mm-hmm. final album. Like good for them. I'm glad that I'm glad that they tried it. So anyways, that that's it for me on that. Let's t- talk to me about TM. Like, what did you like? What didn't you like? Yeah. So obviously Brockhampton released TM as the, Follow-up to the final album, The Family. Check the description below for a review on The Family and our Brockhand and album rankings. The TM obviously stands out in stark contrast to The Family for including uh, the whole group on the vocals, whereas The Family was just a Kevin solo affair. So obviously different and obviously a bit more dated, less lyrically relevant to the finality that we are getting from Kevin on The Family. But it does kind of feel like a time capsule in a fun way because it literally was a resurrection of old sessions from you know, like a year and a half ago. And I definitely heard some songs on TM that I liked quite a bit because they just reminded me of other good Brockhampton songs and like sonic approaches and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting to listen to TM after listening to The Family because The Family is really effective as a closing statement to Brockhampton and really uh, nails it home that this group is ending and creatively and personally, these guys have moved apart. So then when you go backwards, almost subject matter wise with TM, it's I think a bit jarring, but if you can remove yourself from that, I think there are some qualities to enjoy on TM as just a more Brockhampton type experience. Yeah. I think that there's stuff to take away. I think it's also just, and for me, this is not the type of like Brockhampton shit that I tend to gravitate towards more. 
Um, but I definitely think there's some moments that I liked. Um, I, like I already said, it felt a bit disappointing to have this be the final album. I wish they had just kind of like flipped them, but you know, I get it. Um, is what it is. It, it's also hard because like the last track on this is called Goodbye, and mm. <laughs> to have something so like jubilant and celebratory as the ending um, on the family, and then this goodbye, it's like man, kind of like going out in a dud almost like. <laughs> I didn't love the track, although it definitely is, you know, emotional and, and moving. But yeah, tell me about the the moments you liked first, and maybe we can get into the things that didn't work for us much. Yeah, totally. I think right off the bat, um, the first song, FMG, Fuck My Gang, like that's just a banger from yeah. Kevin. Yeah, it's kind of simple, but I thought that one was uh, fucking awesome, honestly. Um, and then right off the bat, the second song after the follow up, you have Animal, right? I think the melody on that one is really really fun you get this like i think cool auto tune for a matt champion on that um and like and right there like that kind of speaks to like the back half of the brockhampton experience where they were really jumping across genre and jumping across um sounds you know it is interesting i think that the family doesn't really give you a lot of the more singing and softer stuff that brockhampton had made their biggest name on previously you know mm-hmm. i mean their biggest songs are sugar and bleach those are soft uh more singing songs right for the most part these two records tm and family are m- much more i think in their saturation style of you know traditional hip-hop but you still do get some moments like on animal uh i like listerine because i thought kevin's flow is really good and i think the, the auto-tune on him sounded quite good i think the, the, my favorite song on this is uh new shoes which has a music video out already just because that's Kevin in his rapping bag. You got Merlin on there. I think he sounds awesome. Uh, I sold everything but pussy in my soul. You know, <laughs> like, I think that was really fun. Um, I was wondering, too, did, did you uh, like Keep It Southern? Because to me, that reminded me a little bit of 1999 Wildfire, which so, I know you love. Yes, I, I do love that that track. And that was my clear standout from TM was Keep It Southern. It was probably my favorite track um really loved that and you mentioned the two other ones that were my two favorites uh fmg and animal i think those three are the ones that stood out most to me you know there's there's a couple other like moments here and there um man on the moon you know you mentioned like the singingness like man on the moon is very singing um but it's like almost like so out there compared to some of the stuff that they've done like you know, it's like a true, almost like, <laughs> I, I can't even think of who I'm like thinking of, but like, um, it, it feels so much more dancey than a lot of like the Brockhampton stuff. I guess when the chorus comes in, it's a little bit less uh, out there, but there's moments where it just feels like a dance track. I didn't really lo- love that from them. Um, and then, yeah, other things just kind of fell flat, like duct tape had a cool beat, but it, just is like so washed out like vocally that didn't really catch me um and then like i mentioned the final track goodbye i was like i don't know it it also kind of felt samey in compared to something like duct tape two tracks before it's like the beats almost the exact same so Mm -hmm. just didn't feel as inspired i guess no i mean and that i think that that is to be expected this was just you know stuff they made these guys said they make they would make like a hundred records at least each album cycle you know, mm-hmm. they worked a lot. They try a lot of different things. Naturally, not all of that's going to work or be that great. And that's why it doesn't come out. 
Right. Um, and like I said, there, there's some good things I do like about TM, and I think it's it, it was good enough that it was worth releasing, given like the perspective they were presenting as like, hey, this is just kind of like a final thank you to the fans, like enjoy this kind of time capsule work, you know. Um, so I think if you look at it through that lens, uh, it's probably the best way to think about it. Um, also, on Man on the Moon, the chorus there, which is like like a super like high pitched like auto tune singing. That reminded me a lot of Knox Fortune, who people would know from his collaborations mm. with Chance the Rapper on songs like All Night. I was like, is that Knox Fortune? Wow. It wasn't. But I was like, man, that, that, that immediately brought me back to something like that. <laughs> I haven't thought of Knox Fortune in a very long time. <laughs> uh, wasn't expecting to hear that today. You know, as, as we're kind of moving towards the end of, of this review, I just wanted to get like your final thoughts. Like, What do you think Brockhampton's like, legacy is going to be? Well, I believe Kevin's, I think it's on the end, and Kevin says, like, Brockhampton top 10 all time or something like that. And, like, uh, there's a lot of, this long story history of r- groups in hip-hop, so I don't think we can go that far. But that being said, they're definitely, I think, a very impactful group, given that they really for the majority of that run were more on the alternative underground hip-hop side of things or as kevin said himself never really embraced by main the mainstream in any sustained way despite signing to a major uh, record label in rca so the fact that they were able to i think overcome that and were never compromised in any way like we got so much variety from them and just last year you know, we got one of their best records ever with Roadrunner, which we both loved, you know? And I think just the way they were able to, I think, do so much in a short amount of time, ultimately was probably to the detriment of this band sticking together. That that much is pretty obvious. But, I mean, they they, they just accomplished so much in terms of what what they released, you know? And it's definitely a really strong catalog that will stand the test of time. I think that, that, that much is obvious. And obviously, it also can makes you not want to look away because I think everyone is invested in many of these individuals and wants to see what is next for so many of these people. Obviously, Kevin Abstract has a solo career already. We'd love to see him fully dive into that and see what that means. He has a friendship with Tyler, the curator, and other people. What could that mean? Ramil is probably untapped mainstream talent when it comes to being a producer and i'm sure he will be as busy as he wants to be and stuff like that and then probably the most up in the air stuff would be those other guys right like what yeah. what's next for like joba and matt and merlin you know because i like them but they, they really have no foundation as soloists to this point and i wonder what they what they set out to do you know someone like joba has a lot of energy but also showed on Roadrunner last year that he has a lyrical pen as well, so I'll yeah. be very invested in seeing what's next from him. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so surprised that they didn't make this work. Ultimately, is that you know, so many of these guys haven't established themselves so, as a solo artist yet, and you know, even if Brock Hampton is just you know on a taking a year to break um, to give them an opportunity to like do some solo work, kind of uh, explore their own vision. It just feels like there's so much more that they could have gotten out of it together. Um, but I think people would say that about most bands that, that break up early or most creative collaborators that don't can't work things out. Um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see where it goes. I, I think for me, as, as um, I think about like what their legacy will be, not only as this like, you know, band, boy band, hip hop group, however you want to label them, that I think not only unexpectedly came and, and made some of the most interesting hip hop music of the last you know decade uh, now, but I think there's this like aspect of them like pushing creative boundaries that um while also still like making music that felt familiar that that's really like interesting and cool to them like we we kind of talked about with the family but i think when they were at their best they were taking stuff and adding this like brockhamptony twist to it which is like something unexpected something with energy that's like overwhelming over the top um or talking about things lyrically that you wouldn't expect to hear from them or or their peers and, and normalizing these these topics um in a way that it just was so interesting and so unique that it just it, it was like really like catching lightning in a bottle in, in the best way possible and really grateful for the i guess like eight albums we got seven eight albums so, and a mixtape yeah it's a right. lot of music we'll, we'll take it um yeah so r.i.p to brockhampton uh I, I can't wait till we get the, the reunion tour someday but uh, any last thoughts on them Nah, man. Um, just would love to figure out what's next for many of these guys, and I'm sure we'll start to hear stuff eventually. But um, ultimately, I'm pretty at peace with the fact that they they have split because it definitely seems like it was necessary for all of them. Favorite Brockhampton song? Uh, Sweet on Saturation yeah. Two. My nice. definitely my favorite. I think that just kind of the best qualities of them making a rap song is on that. Yeah that's a great one i'd probably say boogie just banger it's the it's the one so anyways dave what we got for next week yeah so next week we'll be talking about the conclusion of andor season one very excited to get into that uh what a what a what a joy this has been for all of us also the third album from stormzy arguably the face of uk hip-hop these days can't wait for that and then a bunch of movies are coming out with Thanksgiving holiday weekend. You got the sneak preview release in pretty wide release. Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, the sequel to Knives Out is coming out in theaters about a month before it hits Netflix. And then, of course, Steven Spielberg's uh, autobiographical drama, The Fablemans, a Best Picture contender, will be coming out. And also a timothy chalamet reunion with luca guadagnino about cannibalism bones and all i mean Mm -hmm. who doesn't want to see a movie about cannibalism right i mean right after we eat all this turkey we're gonna watch uh some people eat humans right sounds great you know i have to say i i do not feel like timothy chalamet is someone i would want to want to eat does just does not look appetizing to me it looks a little bony so I don't know if you want to comment on that, but we'll we'll wrap up there. Drop your Timothy Chalamet thoughts in terms of cannibalism below. Um, and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube. Um, hit that follow on youtube.com slash nostalgiapod. Also go to our Twitter at nostalgiapod. Follow the link tree. Follow the podcast any way you want to there. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving. Stay safe. We'll catch you next week. Yeah.